This podcast was created by the Junior Cycle English team. In this piece, we talk to children's and young adult author Patricia Ford. The NCCA has recently published a new indicative list of texts for first-year English students, which is available on the NCCA's English page via curriculumonline.ie. Patricia Ford's novel The Wordsmith is among this list. You will find a link to some further information on each of the novels available on this indicative list on our Junior Cycle English page at jct.ie forward slash English. Patricia, thanks so much. Lovely to get this opportunity to have a quick chat with you about your novel, The Wordsmith. And maybe we could start by giving an overview of what The Wordsmith is about. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. And um, the book is ostensibly an adventure story about a young girl who has to take on the might of the world to stop something very evil happening. But it's also about, primarily, it's about language and about a world that is set in the future in a place called Ark. And this is after global warming has happened. In the book, I call it the melting. And this has happened now. Everything we were told was going to happen has happened. And the whole world has been flooded. There's only one community left. This group of people who were saved by a kind of an eco-warrior called John Noah. And they live in a place called Ark. Now in Ark, music is banned. Uh, art is banned and the language of art is list, a list of 500 words and they're the only words you're allowed to use. Now if you use a word that's not on the list you get thrown into the forest to be eaten by the wolves. So people are pretty careful. Uh, so it's about the restriction of language and a way of controlling people that maybe hadn't been dealt with much, the idea of actually taking the words out of your mouth. And of course being Irish Uh, Our history leads me into that because when the British colonised Ireland, one of their biggest worries was getting rid of language. And to that end, they did things like using tally sticks in the primary schools where the children wore a stick around their neck. And every time they spoke an Irish word, there was a notch on the stick. And for every notch, they got a slap at the end of the day. So I stole that idea in this book. And to control list and the words people use, the people wear tally sticks. And if you get 10 notches on the stick, you get thrown into the forest. So even by doing that, I suppose, I was talking about culture and language and echoes of who we are. But I thought, like I said, for the audience we're talking about, it is primarily uh, an adventure story. So I wanted to read this little bit, Liam, at the beginning, uh, where the protagonist's name is Letta, and she is a wordsmith. Her job is to write the 500 words on a card. Because remember, everything was drowned. There is nothing left. There are no factories. There's no way of printing anything. So she writes the words by hand on cards and people come in and get the words from her. In this scene, which was actually the very first scene I wrote before I knew what the book was about, her master, the wordsmith Benjamin, is away and she's in charge. So it's quite the responsibility. Letta was about to close the shop when she heard the old wooden door rattle open. In front of her, stood a boy of her own age, but thin, the bones in his face so clear it looked as though they'd been drawn there. He looked up and let it could see the previously hidden bright blue-grey eyes. No harm, let it greeted him tentatively. He looked about him. I need words, he said. Yes, said Letta. What words? 
List words, a box of list words, the boy replied, his right hand pressed against the left side of his chest, his eyes darting from the front door back to her face. Letta listened entranced. His voice was rich and fluid, not rusty like most of her customers. He was speaking list, but not in the usual way. A box, he'd said, perfectly legal, but most people didn't bother with the article. Her heart quickened. Why, she began, why need, why you need? The boy frowned. Fail, he said, need words, no question. Letter took a step back and scrutinized him. He seemed nervous, his feet moving restlessly, eyes never still. I wait my master come, she said, only using list words. The boy's eyes clouded over. No, he took a step back, looking at the door behind him as if expecting someone. I know wait. I hear you be wordsmith. Letta flinched, his words stinging like nettles. I wordsmith, she said. She could feel herself getting flustered. She tried again. I wordsmith apprentice, but he no here. So I wordsmith for now. She then goes down to the study to get the words he's looking for. And the, on her way back, something happens. She picked up one of the boxes from the desk and headed back to her customer. As she passed the orderly rows of shelves, her elbow touched a box that had not been properly replaced. It tumbled from its perch and landed at her feet. She jumped as the box fell and an avalanche of cards hit the floor. She bent down and picked up the box. On the front, written in her own steady hand, a word looked back at her, colors. She hastily stuffed the cards back into it. She would take it to the shop and sort it later. But for now, her customer was waiting. She hurried through the door to where she could see the counter. At first, she thought the boy had left. And then she saw him. Or at least she saw his hand on the cold marble floor. His hand and then his arm and then his chest and the crater the bullet had left and the thick red soupy blood. And then she heard the high-pitched scream of a young girl it took her a full five seconds to realise that it was she, Letta, who was screaming even as the precious box of words fell from her hands and the cards fluttered to the floor. Crimson, sienna, indigo, cobalt, ochre and gunmetal blue. So that's her introduction to the problem in the novel too. Somebody now has arrived in her world who she has to make a moral decision about. He is a rebel and she has to decide to stay with the status quo, which is where she is. She works for John Noah or protect him. Even so, just hearing that extract from the story read aloud, there, there really is nothing like hearing a story read to you. There's something just so powerful about it. I absolutely love that. I think we should read to each other all through our lives. I had a friend who was very ill at one stage and I couldn't do much for her, but I used to go and read to her. And I think the sound of the human voice and being told a story, I think it brings us back to our childhood as well. It's a very reassuring kind of a thing. Absolutely. It's really it's something really comforting about it. Can I ask you, was it difficult to, to come up with list with the certain words that you yeah. had decided to include or exclude? It's funny because the whole idea of list in my head was that I'm an Irish speaker. I started speaking Irish when I was about four, when I went to school. And then Irish became really important through my life. A lot of the time I worked through Irish, I taught Irish, all of those things. But over my lifetime, 
I could see that the list of words we had in Irish had grown smaller and smaller. I often say to young people when I'm talking to them, if you go to Connemara today and you want to say, I went on my bike to the shop to buy a sandwich, you would say, Inye huimermo bicycle, kudian shopa agas hiani me sandwich. And you can see already there's two words eaten, gone from the list. So I used to wonder about how many words we would need to survive. How many words would the Irish language have on a list before we wouldn't have anything? Uh, and out of that, I got the idea of a list. To get the 500 words, I wrote to a linguist in the States and I asked him, I told him I didn't want any fancy words. I wanted the plainest, most basic words that we could have a conversation with. And how many would you need? And he said, 500. And then he sent me a list of 500 of the most commonly used words in the English language. I then took that list and every time I needed to cheat and use a word that wasn't on his list, I took out one of his words and put in one of mine. So the list kept me grounded. I had that 500 words, but if I was talking about a tally stick, which wasn't on his list, but I needed in the book, then I would take out one of his words and put that in. Originally, we were going to put the list of 500 words at the back of the book, but when we tried it out on readers before it was published, they were spending their whole time looking up the word. They didn't trust me. They was like, oh, he said that word. I must check is it on the list. So it distracted people. So we decided to just leave it out. It's a fantastic combination between research and creativity yeah. and marrying the two together and to give life to the story and the idea that you have. Yeah. Um, how might the themes of this novel be relevant for a first year cohort of students? I think they're very relevant because Another, if language was one side of it, the other huge motivating force to write the book was the environment. So I live in Moy Cullen on the outskirts of Connemara. We love the burn on the other side of us. And you can see we live in a really fragile ecosystem. So when I was writing the book, all the talk was about global warming and what was going to happen. So that was very much in my head. I think first years identify with that because they are the kind of, they're far more active, I think, in things like environment and social justice than we were at that age. We only had to look at the likes of Greta Thunberg, and I know she's a bit older than first years, but that age are very taken with her and her leadership and her ideas. So there's a lot in the book about environment and, and the end of the world and what will happen. But there's also bits in it about faith. There's a statue there who the people refer to as the goddess in Ark, but Letta tells us that she was actually uh, a clone. And when we first cloned people in our time uh, to make people accept them, they called her a goddess or a prophet. Uh, so there's talk about science and religion and all of that. And of course, a lot of talk of freedom of expression, which I think teenagers relate to. Very often we're trying to curtail teenagers' freedom of expression. Although hopefully now I think we're more interested in hearing what they say, but there certainly was a time when children and teenagers were seen and not heard and nobody wanted to know what they said. So I like that idea that there, there are things like that for them to think about in the book. That kind of nicely answers part of my next question, which is about how you use your story to show how words can not only express ideas, but also have the power to shape society totally believe that that words do shape society I think words people say that it's not so much that we express our thoughts in words but that our words make the thoughts and I think that's true and we've always had a system of language 
where it had an important social function because it brought people together and fostered traditions and uh, history and all that was passed on from people. In that way, people did feel a solidarity of coming together. Your experience is like my experience and we can discuss that and we can reassure one another that all the things we're suffering or enjoying are all part of being human. Well, if you stop us talking, then we don't have that reassurance of the group, the herd coming together, of society. And we don't have any context. We don't have any history. We don't have any future without words to talk about it. And yourself, even as I'm talking to you now, I'm thinking of things. My thoughts are being shaped by what I'm saying myself. Um, it's something we're totally unaware of as humans, the amount of that that we do. And the other thing in your question was about words being powerful. And we now know that the way we speak to children, for example, has a huge influence on them. If you praise a child, they'll behave in one way. If you're constantly criticizing them, they'll behave in another. I was trying to show that in the book. Really, it's like I'm saying I was trying to show that. I show the opposite. I show what happens when people can't come together, when, when there is no solidarity, when there is no history. And very often that comes through John Noah, who is the baddie in the book, because his attitude to, to language is totally different. And society and helping one another and discussing things, you lose all of that with language. And that is a powerful thing if you're the person in charge. Are there certain excerpts from the novel that present ideas such as the power of language and when used in a negative way the impact that can have on the recipient. I think in the book John Noah his argument for the restriction of language is that when we have too much language when we have a choice of what we can say that it brings nothing but trouble. So he would say that for instance plentitude of words would give people a need for excess they need more and more. The more things they can say, the more things they want. He would also say that hot words result in war. Um, but the one he is most critical of is our ability to procrastinate and how we can talk ourselves out of trouble. We know that certain things in our society are wrong or dangerous, but we don't care because we can talk ourselves out of the situation. So this is a little excerpt from John Noah, who is the baddie in the book. And every second chapter, John Noah speaks. Now I like this idea because I hope these characters are nuanced. I always say to young people, the baddie never knows he's the baddie. Only we know that. He thinks he's the goodie. And in this situation, this fellow was an eco-warrior. He saved the only people who could be saved, but his obsession went too far. And here you get him speaking about what he thinks about words. The room was large and airy. Shelves lined the walls on three sides, shelves that stretched way above his head, bending under the weight of the hundreds of books stored there. The fourth wall was covered in old newspaper, yellowed and faded, but still readable. The room had become a shrine of sorts, he supposed. The books he had saved before the last days. He ran his fingers along the spines. Shakespeare, Dickens, Keats, the ancients, all there alongside books from the last century. Nothing wasted, nothing lost. His private collection. He would find it difficult to let them go when the time came, but he would let them go. 
he couldn't risk them being found at a later date. There were few instances where people managed to decode words after Nicene, very few. Nonetheless, he wouldn't take that chance. They would be destroyed, along with everything the wordsmith had managed to salvage. For a second, images of the wordsmith filled his head, but he pushed them away. He turned his back on the books and walked across to the wall of newsprint. Here was a potted history of the past hundred years. The warnings, the signs, global warming, water levels rising. It was incomprehensible even now that man had just ignored it all. Young people talked about the melting as if it were a single event, but it hadn't been like that. The earth had been heating up for years. His fingers touched one of the news sheets. Scientists were warning of an alarming acceleration in the melting of the polar ice caps. They predicted a dramatic rise in sea levels. That was back in the 21st century. He shook his head. He chose another article from around the same time. The writer was warning about the disappearing ice caps. Torrents of words had followed. Words from politicians assuring people there was no such thing as global warming. Words from industrialists who justified their emissions of CO2 into the atmosphere. Words to hide behind, words to deceive, useless, dangerous, destructive words. He drew back his hand and punched the wall, hurting his knuckles and leaving a trail of blood on the yellowing paper. So I suppose what I was trying to show there was, um, I like that idea of people looking back at us and our time and trying to understand us. And his idea that words are the thing that cause the most trouble, because unlike animals, we can persuade ourselves of things. We have the power of debate. We can take a thought from my head and put it straight into your head without using a scalpel. I can just do that with words. I can put images in your head. I can persuade you of my point of view. And therefore, John Noah thought we're inferior to the animals and the birds, because they don't do that. They just get on with it and they don't hurt the planet like we do. So his whole idea that nuance was a bad thing, whereas Leto would say, language is what makes us human. And we have our faults. Every character in that book, even Leto has her faults, but that's not to say we're not valuable. And our power of expression, though we can use it for ill, we can also use it for good. And I think when we look back at previous things that have happened in history over the last 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, whatever it might be. There's so many examples of instances where language has been used both to hurt, but also to uplift. And that idea of something that really makes us human, even giving comfort to somebody else through language, it's something that really is powerful. Yeah, that whole thing of a society that, like Black Lives Matters, people say something and it lifts a whole area of society just with their words with their good intention and equally how we can use words pejoratively and ruin people's lives and fool ourselves, as John Noah said, uh, fool ourselves into believing what we want to believe. Could you discuss how language is at the heart of identity and self-expression? Yeah, as an Irish person, I think it's really easy to do that because we work in two languages and, and we have our own native language and we have the English language. Uh, Mandela said a beautiful thing. He said, if 
you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his mother tongue, that goes to his heart. And I think language is an emotional thing. I, I do think it's something that brings us together, that comforts us. But also it is, to me, words are like little pieces of archeology. span Through our words and through our languages, we have little bits of our forefathers given back to us. There are clues and hints in the words we use that tell us who we were. I like to think the ancestors might be gone, but their bits of them live on in the way we speak, whether that's in Irish or in English. Um, so I like that whole idea, the, the idea of not just maybe the history of your culture and the country you live in, but the history of your family. All of those words. Um, language carries tradition, customs, folklore from one generation to another. And I think without a language, no culture can sustain. So even in, in our own situation with the Irish language, where we still have the language and it leaks into our English, it leaks into the way we think and the way we speak. For any Irish person who goes to London to work, you quickly realize that they think you're not speaking English, you're speaking your own brand of English. So words, the carriers of our culture, if you like, and you hear so many Irish people speaking Irish when they're abroad and they never speak Irish when they're at home. We're very proud of our identity. It's just, it is part of who we are. Uh, and I like that about language. And I like the way, when I think about the wordsmith and the fact that they're not allowed words, everything they're losing. And what I tried to do in the book was I made my own language, the narrator's language, maybe richer than it would normally be. I was trying to use very poetic, lyrical language myself to juxtapose that with people who speak with that chair hard, want soft chair. There's no poetry in it. There's no lyricism in it. And there's no shared emotion in it. So I tried to make my language very rich so that the reader would see what they were missing. Maybe we're conscious of it from the whole thing of emigration, both ways that people who come to us from other countries bring with them their language. And we know this from the other side, when we emigrated, very often Irish people stayed together in community abroad and spoke Irish. And for them, it was the comfort of bringing home with them. Because I think your mother tongue is always your home linguistically. So people who come to Ireland, they bring that with them, their language, their culture, their home, their sense of home. I suppose it would be prudent to talk about maybe the labels that some of the characters have in the novel. So we have wordsmiths, gavers, I hope I pronounced that correctly, desecrators, maybe even your inspiration behind where those labels have come from and what they tell us or their impact on the character that carries that label more than likely unbeknownst to themselves that this label has been put upon them. Absolutely. Uh, even the wordsmith, I thought long and hard about it. I was trying to convey that label would have been put on her by John Noah. So what was he trying to achieve there? And the word wordsmith reminded me of blacksmith. Whereas if I were to put a title on somebody who was going to be in charge of all the language in the community, I might call them a writer or I might call them a poet. Um, but he calls them a wordsmith and it brings it down. It says language is a skill, a craft, not an art. Language is not poetic. It is useful in a certain circumstance. It makes it a craft. I liked that idea from him. Gavers was an interesting one. When, when I wrote the book, I called the police the guardians. 
And when I went to the publisher, they said loads of YA novels call the police, the guardians, or the people in charge, the guardians. So I was trying to think of something else. And in the Romani language, the language the gypsies speak, they call the police the gabbers. And I love the word as soon as I heard it, because I think the, the sound word is so important. And gabber is such a tough word. I always think it's like it's going to grab you. It's something to be afraid of, a gabber. And in our situation in English, where we say the gaffer, the gaffer on a building site, I imagine those words are connected to the boss, the person in charge, the gabber. Desecrators was more interesting to me because Desecrators was all about propaganda. For young people, I think it's really interesting to talk about propaganda because we never notice it really. And ads, advertisements are the biggest place of propaganda. There's a lovely poster from the election campaign of Barack Obama. And it's just a photograph of Barack, a black man. And underneath it just says, hope, nothing else, not vote for me and just hope. So propaganda has been with us for a long time and loaded words are one of the things they use in propaganda. So for example, if I say to you about my garden, if I say the word plant, you probably don't get much of a reaction. But if I say the word flower, it's a much more emotional thing. You have a better image in your head. So propaganda is like that. In the wordsmith, the people in charge use the word desecrator for the rebels. Now the rebels are the artists, the musicians, the writers, and John Noah calls them desecrators. So destroyers, people who are out to destroy the new world. They call themselves creators. So you can see there's a huge difference in what their propaganda about themselves and John Noah's propaganda about them. And I like the idea of young people really looking carefully at how we are manipulated by loaded words there's actually a list, um, I'll send it to you afterwards, there's a list you can get of uh, loaded words, the, the most loaded words, like happy or good even, is a loaded word. Somebody was talking the other day on the radio about somebody came from a good family. And this woman was a psychologist and she said, what's a bad family? The same way as we say in Ireland, you know, they're a very respectable family. We use these words as propaganda to, to get across what we want people to think, what we want people to know and shape the world accordingly. So I was conscious of that, of using words that would show that. That's fascinating. My final question is around the connection between how your characters use language to control in the novel and the control of knowledge and information today. Do you, do you see a link between one and the other? Yeah, I definitely do. I think the whole control of words, knowledge is power and ideas matter and people have died for ideas. A single word can be hugely powerful, but you have to get that word out there. So we're living in a world where people, I think, are trying to get a stranglehold on the dissemination of knowledge. Uh, so let's put out loads of fake news, flood it with that. Don't be nuanced. Don't talk about the other side. Only talk about that side. And you can see in, in the US in particular under Trump how that worked. Keeping the message really simple, really short, reminded me a lot of Liz. Keep it to tweets, a few words, uh, and don't let people really debate things. Um, some fella called it the revenge of the inarticulate. But also there's another thing going on in the wordsmith where all the professions, all the crafts, so if you're like a blacksmith, if you're a shoemaker, if you're the cook, you get extra words that aren't on the list. You get words to do with your craft. So you'll know all the words for baking. I'll know all the words for making shoes. But the general public won't know any of those words. Now, that creates elitism 
So now we're in, we know these words and you don't. In our society, if you look at medicine or if you look at the law, where we go into court and we're presented with people in wigs, with traditions we don't understand, with language we don't understand. And that keeps us in our place because that elitism keeps you in your box. And that is control. And equally in the wordsmith, where it's all about control, that elitism means that John Noah can get certain jobs done but everybody else is without that knowledge. But John Noah is very clever in that he's forming these elite pockets where most people don't have words, these people do. And I think in our society, we do that and we should be aware of it. I always think as people who have an education, those of us who are educated, have an absolute responsibility to make sure that educating people doesn't just form another elite and that the knowledge is kept from the people who need it. We should strive, I think, to disseminate knowledge in every way we can. And again, going back to the new Irish and people who are now here with us who may not have our language, I think that, that we have a duty to make sure that doesn't exclude people. That's just kind of happenstance that they happen to be here. If they were in their own country, they'd totally understand what's going on. So, yeah, I think there, there is a lot to be had out of that and about how we give the message, how we control the message. That's why in the book, I try not to, even though I'm calling John Noah the baddie, I try not to have any real baddie in that everybody there thinks they're doing something good. It's just, you have to hear every side of the debate to know where you stand. You have to hear every side of the discussion. So kids often say to me, when we talk about freedom of speech, they'll say, oh, but do you not think that certain words should be banned? Like we won't mention them, but there are words in the English language are very insulting, maybe to people of color or of someone else, just insulting words. Why do we need them? Why do we need them? And I always say we need them because we have the right to use them. We have the right to speak, to express ourselves, even if we're being ugly and horrible and terrible, because by expressing it, somebody else can say to them, hold on, don't ever use that word. That's a terrible word. And explain why it's a terrible word instead of banning it so the people then are kind of talking behind their hands about people and using the word and nobody can confront them. Nobody can argue with them. Words work both ways. We, we have the power to convince other people not to be mean. In school and in, in life where there's bullying, bullies use destructive words to try to damage other people. But we can also use really good words to stop it. But we, we can't if it's not out in the open. That's what I'm trying to say. If it's hidden, we can't confront it. So we need to allow people to say whatever they want and then have the right to say, stop. You cannot say that. Could I ask a question around your opinion on, there's been a lot of discussion recently in the media and in, on different platforms about certain books that are on curriculums and perhaps their place on that curriculum because of language that they might use or specify. And certain people feel that at this point, it's time for us to remove those from the curriculum. Would you have any opinion on that? I wouldn't agree. I think, like I said earlier, language is archaeology. Language is history. If there are books, and there are books, who speak very badly of other people or use damaging terminology, I think rather than saying we won't read them, we need to learn from them. We need to look at them and say, for instance, Black Lives Matter didn't happen in the last year. It's been going on for hundreds of years, but our children don't necessarily know that. 
So to read one of those books and say to them, look at how these people are described here. Look at what was acceptable. I think that's far more powerful than saying, oh, we'll just ban it. Or, you know, if there's a book with rape or a book, that kind of thing, I think it, it needs to be discussed and it needs to be talked about. So hiding it away won't work. Now, there are things that I think, particularly for young people, I don't like um, the idea of, you know, graphic anything or explicit anything for the sake of it. I think an adult needs to read it and say, yes, there is that scene in it, but it's worth it because it tells us this. And it's not just gratuitous. I think those decisions have to be made. But generally, the books you were talking about are good books, good novels, but they, they have something in them that people no longer agree with or like to see passed on. But that's what I was saying about what I say to the kids about freedom of speech. Real freedom of speech means being able and wanting to hear stuff that you don't agree with. If, if it isn't that, then there is no freedom of speech. If our idea of freedom of speech is we'll only tell our young people what we agree with as a society, as a group, we believe that all people should be treated equally and we'll give them books that show that. They're not learning anything. If you show them a book where people are not treated equally and where society at the time read those books and agreed with them and asked, how could that happen? And how did we get from there to here? And how will we get better as we go on? Like George Floyd, people are saying it's the beginning. It's the beginning after a very long story. And I think all of that needs to be discussed. Patricia, thanks so much. This was absolutely a delight and fascinating to chat with you. So thank you so much for your time today.